deal. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, uh, we'll be continuing in uh, your study of Matthew. Uh, we'll be picking up where Jordan left off in Matthew 21. Um, and I believe last week y'all were looking at the first 22 verses of, of the book of Matthew. And then this week, this morning, we'll be looking at 21, picking up in verse 23. <clears throat> and so as you're flipping there, I'll just briefly call your attention uh, to um, remember what you all talked about last week, uh, which was, to my understanding, um, uh, Jordan uh, teaching on the scene where Jesus is flipping the table and, and uh, expelling people out of the, or running people outside of the temple um, as a means to ultimately remind those of, of um, those who would come to the temple of, of what he really desired from them. And so the temple was a place that was uh, erected for the purpose of, of worshiping God, a very real and, and, uh, and, and in, a, in a very real and, and, and tangible sense, um, the temple was intended to be a, a holy place, a, a place that was so grand that as you entered, you, you were very aware of the fact that, that, that the building itself is even bearing witness to the glory of God. Um, and, and, and so this place, with all of its grandeur and all of its beauty, uh, had, had been desecrated by greed, really. And so um, in this very emotional scene that you all looked at last week, we see that Jesus' greatest desire for people is to truly love him and to serve him uh, and, and uh, to keep his word and to devote, with, uh, to devote themselves to prayer. And the one place where this was supposed to go unhindered um, had been uh, tainted. And so his flipping tables and, and, and then uh, cursing the fig tree in the latter half of the chapter uh, is ultimately meant to get people's attention and open their eyes to see the futility and sinfulness of their own ways. And so, uh, so where we're looking at this morning, or what we're looking at this morning, is more or less a continuation of, of those themes. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and salvation is through Him alone. And so therefore, what He's doing and, and what we'll see is that His, his desire is for us to have faith uh, in, in, in Him being who He says that He is. Uh, and then ultimately submitting to his lordship. And so uh, we'll read now, in verse, starting in verse uh, 21, 23. So, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will, all, uh, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. That the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of them did the will of the father? 
They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came uh, to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. Verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they, and they did the same to him uh, to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, uh, heard these parables, uh, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Chapter 22, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom, uh, uh, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, they, uh, all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Find him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we confess that you are good, um, and that you are worthy to be praised. Uh, and in indirecting our, our prayers to you, uh, we recognize that uh, you are sovereign and that you are reigning on your throne um, and that we are not. Uh, and, and so to you, Father, we ask that um, you would soften our hearts to, to your word, um, 
that your word would, would dwell on us richly, as Paul writes in, in Colossians, uh, and that we would see all that you have for us in this hour, and in all things that we have faithfully bear witness um, to, um, uh, to your saving grace. Uh, Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, okay, we'll start looking at the text. So, uh, if you want a title for uh, this morning's lesson uh, study, uh, you can uh, title it, uh, The Authority of Jesus Challenge. And I know what you're thinking, you know, wow, Riley, this is so creative. Where would you get a title like that? Uh, you know, verse 23, you know, I'm just biblical like that. So, um, <laughs> so, but before we look at our first point, I want to go ahead and preface our study with just a little bit of context. Um, partially because uh, that's always important, but also because 23, uh, verses 23 through 27 don't necessarily fit well with the parable. Uh, they're connected to it, but, um, but to, it's, it's just a different section. And so, um, so when looking at chapter 21, verses 23 through 27, uh, we, we have a, a context or, or the means of understanding the, the parables that Jesus is about to go into explaining. And so... <clears throat> Um, as I've already stated, uh, this morning is a little bit of a continuation of, of last week's study, uh, picking up, where again, where Jordan left off. So uh, here, starting in verse 23, Jesus has returned to the temple uh, after um, uh, flipping tables and, and running off the merchants and, and the buyers and sellers and, and, and people like that. Uh, and, and, um, and so because the temple was a place where people would gather to hear Scripture taught, Jesus came to teach Scripture. Uh, he came to do exactly that. And so um, as, uh, as Jesus entered and as he was teaching, uh, as verse 23 says, the chief priests and the elders interrupted him saying, by what authority do you do these things? These things referring to uh, what he had just done the day before. Um, but then also, uh, I believe these things referring to him teaching. And so uh, by what authority are you doing these things? And then also, who gave you this authority? Uh, so it's a twofold question, uh, and, and in so doing, what's implied is that teaching requires authority. So uh, for Judaism and, and uh, the Jewish culture at the time, authority or, or, or teaching and or the authority to do so required some sort of external justification, meaning that he had to have some sort of validation or accreditation or, or approval to be there doing what he was doing. And since he was being asked this by the chief priests and the elders, the temple leaders, uh, knowing that they were ultimately the ones that gave this authority or gave this, um, this, this accreditation, um, this was meant to be somewhat of a gotcha question, right? And so um, because they knew that Jesus didn't have any of the credentials that they wanted, uh, they, they thought that they had him. And recognizing that these were the temple leaders. Jesus knew that no matter how he answered, that it would ultimately lead to just uh, a bunch of heated debate and, and probably end with an accusation of Jesus being a blasphemer or something like that. So instead of answering, he responds with a question, uh, promising to answer their two questions if, if they answer his one. Jesus' Jesus's question to them says, in verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? from heaven or from man. And, and I'll just say this. This was a very savvy question, right? Like Jesus had, Jesus had style. And, and it's important to know that 
that all of this is really happening in front of a crowd of people. And so uh, the temple leaders were aware both that this was a, a, a really, really good question and that they are also in front of crowds. And so uh, uh, knowing that if they said from heaven, then their, their uh, reputation or, or their argument against Jesus for, for having the authority or for having no authority rather to teach uh, would just immediately be uh, eroded. Uh, they would have no grounds to question him because John, being a prophet, actively bore witness and testified of Jesus Christ as, as the Son of God. But if they said from man, then they know that they would be uh, rejecting the, the, the authority of, of a martyred prophet. They'd be denying the fact that John was a prophet. And, and because, as, uh, as, as what verse 26 says, uh, but if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will we tell you by what, what authority uh, we, uh, I do these things. And so the, the temple leaders being the, the smart and, and wise uh, politicians and, and religious leaders that they were, to the diplomatic route and said, we don't know, because they knew that the crowds of the people that were present listening to Jesus all believe John to be a prophet. And so if they said uh, from man, uh, the, the crowds would you know, most likely revolt and, and, and they'd be responsible for causing a lot of civil uprest. And if you'll notice too, it's not that these leaders didn't have an answer or, or that they didn't have an opinion because they certainly did. But they knew that, again, that Jesus would either unravel every argument they had or that they would ultimately, like I said, cause a lot of unrest amongst the crowds, and so they were fearful of them. And so, because they didn't answer Jesus' question, Jesus is under no obligation to answer theirs. But he does so, he just does it indirectly, and he does it through parables, as we'll, as we'll see here in just a second. So, um, so, in the three parables that we'll look at this morning, Jesus answers both. He, he, tell, he will tell them by what authority he is doing them, uh, the things that he's doing, and of whom gave him this authority. Again, it's just, it's just an indirect way of doing so. And so with this in mind, we'll look at our first point. First point for this morning, verses 28 through 32, the sons who resist the Father. The sons who resist the Father. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is telling a story of a man who has two sons, and, and he goes to them each separately saying the exact same thing. He gives them the same command of his sons. He says to them, go and work in a vineyard, right? And so the first son defies his father and says no, which is really surprising. But later, he changes his mind and goes to work in the vineyard. And to the second son, uh, the man gives the same command, and the son says, I will go. But ultimately, he deceives his father and does not go. And so Jesus asks, he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And the crowd replies to them, the first. And so Jesus responds back and says, well, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came, in, uh, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So what does this mean? Well, I should mention that the, a, a whole sermon could be devoted to each of these three parables. And so 
Uh, we don't have time for that this morning, obviously, so I'm just going to hit the, the main points. Uh, and, and there are two of them with this parable specifically. The first is that sons in Jewish culture uh, signified something more than just a familial bond, right? Um, so uh, it, a, a, a son is also a, a positional status. Uh, and, and, and the firstborn son specifically, just in the sense that, that upon their father's death, that they'd be the ones to inherit uh, all the family possessions, so all the land and, and all the belongings, the firstborn son would be the ones to ultimately collect the inheritance that was, uh, that was due to them. Uh, and, so, and, and that was just, that was just the culture at the time. And so what we're seeing here is that the first son is resisting to do the will of his father and soon changing his mind. That's important. But in changing his mind, Jesus is attempting to convey the fact that, that this is symbolic of repentance. Uh, and so the first son was living in rebellion, but he later repented of his ways to serve his father. The second son had the appearance of obedience, uh, but really he was, uh, he, was, he was really living in blatant disobedience. And this means that while he had the appearance of righteousness, he was really uh, actually unrighteous. He was, his life was characterized by uh, deceit and, and, um, and, and, and sin. And so uh, I'll come back to this, this point in a moment. But you, if you'll notice, you'll have this paradox. Again, the first doing the will of the Father, the second one not. But the second idea is that of societal norms. And so in verse 31, Jesus says, tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And so that's kind of a weird transition uh, from the two signs to, to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Uh, and, and, and upon first glance, it's kind of confusing. It certainly was for me. But Jesus is, is using this parable, as he will with the others, as, as an allegory. So everything that we read has, another, has a double meaning. So in this parable, the, the two signs are representative of those who will come to, the, uh, who will come to faith in, in Jesus Christ and those who will uh, deny the authority of Jesus, who will deny the fact that he is the Son of God. And so what's happening here is that a distinction is being made as to who is really and ultimately acceptable to God and who his people really are. And so in this culture, the Jewish elite believed themselves to be God's chosen ones, those who would fulfill God's promise of inheriting the kingdom of God, while the tax collectors and the prostitutes were the ultimate outcasts who were unworthy and unable to ever be pleasing to God. So what Jesus has done here is, is a typical, the first shall be last bit, right? Like the first son resists the father's command, but changes his mind and repents. Uh, who does the will of the father? He asks, the first son. And so Jesus says, you're right. As it is, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will, in, will enter the kingdom of God before you, uh, before you, uh, referring to the Jewish leaders at the time. And so the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter before the Jewish leaders. The outcasts, the, the last, will now be first, taking the place of the first son in, in inheriting the kingdom as the firstborn, because though they once lived in sin and in unrighteousness, they ultimately came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. While the religious elite choose to, to never accept Jesus' authority, and, and, and live in their empty religiosity. And so, again, the Jewish leaders had the appearance of religious favor as God's chosen. But what Jesus says here is that, is that or, or as we'll soon see in the second one, is that the kingdom of God is being taken from them. 
and they and they will no longer be the stewards of 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 his kingdom of his people and I'll just briefly note that if you want to uh, quickly flip to Romans 10, I'll, I'll refer to uh, verses 1 uh, through 4. So here Paul writes, and, and, and in, in this section specifically, he is, is referring to uh, the Jewish religious leaders. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so essentially the main point is that the Jewish leaders had all the privileges and all the advantages in, in society and in their opportunity to simply know God, and, and, and they squandered all of it, all of it in their ignorance. And, and if anyone should have trusted in Christ being who that he says he is, it should have been them. But as it is written here, the first in, the, in their society will be the last in, in eternity. So the, their inheritance is no longer theirs to collect, but rather uh, those who they have deemed as unfit because of their, uh, because of their repentance. And so this leads us now to our second point, the tenants who reject the master. The tenants who reject the master. We'll look at verses 33 through 45. <clears throat> and here are similar things going on. Uh, Jesus is still speaking to the same crowds at, at the same time, uh, and, and he shares another parable. In this one, Jesus tells of a master who, who buys a vineyard and builds the necessary things to protect it and see that it is turning a profit and working properly and things like that. And then he leases it to some tenants to, to keep it and to work it and to make sure that everything is cared for, meaning that like everything is running properly and that uh, the, the grapes are being harvested on time. Uh, essentially, they, they are being leased it to keep it. Uh, and so when it came time to, to harvest, the man uh, who has now moved outside of, uh, outside of the country or, or just away from the, uh, away from the vineyard, when it, when it came time to harvest, the man sent his servants on behalf to collect the fruit. But as a form of rebellion, the tenants, uh, the tenants chose not to submit to the master's authority over them as the owner of the vineyard, uh, but rather uh, they took the servants that the, king, or that the master had sent to, to collect their fruit, and they beat one and killed one and stoned, uh, and stoned another. Um, all because what they were wanting was they were wanting the vineyard uh, for themselves. They 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 wanted to to uh, more or less cause such a um, uh, such a burden and, and such a a pain for the master that he would ultimately uh, relinquish this this vineyard to the tenants that he was leasing it to. And so their thought was that if they caused him enough grief, that they would ultimately get their way. And however, they were wrong. Verse thirty-five. Uh, or excuse me, 36, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. So master sent, again, more servants and more servants than the first, and the tenants uh, killed and stoned and beat uh, those servants. And then finally, he says, finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. And so in this, this is significant because the, the master has not yet responded with, with wrath and vengeance, right? They, they've, 
killed two sets of, of servants. Twice he has sent servants to them, and, and the tenants have killed them both times. And so he sends his son thinking that this might, have, this might result in a change of heart for them, uh, that surely they would see uh, the, the significance of, of the master sending his son to the vineyard on his behalf as a representative of the master. Verse 38, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they killed him, thinking that uh, since, they, since the heir of the vineyard was, uh, was dead, that, that they could, again, have, have a chance to collect um, the inheritance, to, to, to collect the vineyard to get what they wanted. Um, but instead of seeing the, the grace of the master in, in not coming down with, with wrath, uh, they see an opportunity to, to get what they wanted. And so here Jesus pauses and asks, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the, the fruits in their season. And so again, we have to ask, what in the world is going on? Like, how does this relate to Jesus' authority being challenged? Well, as in the first parable, so it is with the second parable that, that everything here has a double meaning. And so in this one, in the parable of the tenants, God represents the master of the vineyard. He, he, is, the, he is the owner of the vineyard. The people, uh, or Israel, represent the vineyard, and the fruit represents uh, God's people, the righteous who come to faith. Um, uh, Israel's leaders represent the wicked tenants, the tenants who are killing the servants that the master has sent and, and refusing to give the fruit over to the master, uh, refusing to, to give the master what rightfully belongs to him. And, and, and this is really cool. The prophets uh, represent the servants that were sent, uh, who were beaten and stoned and killed. And if you'll, if you'll also re- remember the fact that that. As a prophet, John, who came to bear witness of Christ, was also murdered and killed. Um, and so, so the prophets are the servants who were beaten and stoned. And Jesus represents the son who was slain. And so here the tenants reject the authority of the master and they fail to serve him. And repeatedly, they repeatedly defied him. And again, repeatedly, the master gave them an opportunity to turn from their wicked ways as a, as a as a, a hope that they would correct and that they would, that they would see his graciousness in sending his son as his representative and, 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 and hopefully have their eyes open to the fact that they were evil and doing uh, really, really crude things. Um, but, but again, they, they, uh, they refused and they resisted. And so um, if, uh, you know, again, just looking at the main ideas of, of this text. The point is not that the tenants are being uh, punished uh, because they're being bad. Rather, the point is precisely what Paul says in Colossians 3.22. You don't have to flip there. But uh, in Colossians 3.22, Paul writes, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so the point that that uh, Matthew is trying to convey here is that our submission to a higher power is indicative of our reverence for that higher power. Uh, and so, so a, a, um, what, it, what is shown by our submission to our authority 
is, is a respect or a healthy adoration of them. And so it is with Christ in this parable. By submitting to him and, and, and by grace through faith as the heir of all things and, and as what the author of Hebrew, Hebrews writes, as the exact imprint of, of God's nature, likewise is the submission to God of, of the Bible. And so, um, and so the God, like, the, the point is, is that Jesus wants them to submit to the God that they claim to represent and the God that they claim to teach about. But they're missing the point. And so they are, they are not stewarding the kingdom of God well because what they want for themselves is, is all the rights and privileges that, that uh, Jewish authority offers them. And because of the rejection of him, Jesus says in verse 43, says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. So in essence, what this means is that Jesus has, has come as the mediator of a new covenant. And, and, and he comes to do so with his people. So, so what we see now as, or what we see here as, as God uh, interacting and, and, um, and uh, yeah, interacting with, with uh, religious leaders, the, the leaders of Israel, uh, Jesus is telling them that soon a transition will take place where it is not the leaders that will inherit the promise, but, but uh, the fact that soon Jesus Christ will raise his church and this will be the new means through which God's redemptive plan for man- mankind uh, will be accomplished. Uh, this is how Jesus will bring many sons to glory. And so our third and final point for the morning, the people who refuse the king. And I don't know why there is a chapter break here. It's a really terrible chapter break. But uh, again, Jesus shares a third parable. Uh, and, and he does so as a means to provide indirectly an answer to the initial questions by what authority he is doing these things and who has given him this authority to do these things, to teach his people. And so read with me in verse, uh, uh, chapter 22, verse 2. Verse two. It says, the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no, uh, but they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his, uh, to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And I want to pause right here because there's some really significant things that I feel are, are, are worth noting, uh, some of which I'll come back to in a minute once we uh, start to close. But the first thing I'll mention is, is the reason for the people not accepting the invitation of the king. And, and I think it's really, really curious that, that the first refused the invitation because they simply had a greater desire to tend to their own affairs. Right? Verse 5. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. And so this is just fascinating because this is an invitation from the ruler of their land, and immediately they have failed to recognize the significance of what's happening and what is being offered to them. And so their, their sovereign king has invited them to come and feast, and they decline it, and, 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 and not once but twice. And, and not only do they decline it, but... Verse 5 says they paid no attention to it. They didn't even bother to, to acknowledge it. And so 
verse 3 is, is the first invitation, and then we see the second one in verse 4, and then the response in verse 5 of not paying attention, not even addressing the fact that the king has invited them to dine with him. And the other thing to notice is that uh, the, the, second, um, the second half of the people, verse 6, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And I mention this because what you have is two very different responses to the king, right? You have apathy and not cherishing the significance of being invited to a royal wedding feast, but then you also have blatant aggression. Um, blatant aggression in the sense that, that they killed his servants. The people that he invited killed his servants. And though, uh, though different, they're both similar in the sense that they all acted as without regard for the consequences of their actions. Right? Like that, that's really significant. So why would anyone do such a thing as this if, if they knew that it would ultimately lead to their own demise? And so in reading this, I, I feel like a proper question is, is could it be that, that the people did not actually think that the king would take action against their rebellion? and against their disrespect. So like, if, if you say no to the one who sits enthroned over your kingdom and you deny his invitation and you kill his servants, what's being communicated is not support and it's not submission, right? Like what's being, com- what's being communicated here is insubordination, right? Like they're saying, we do not recognize your authority and, and not only that, we don't fear you. We serve a king that we do not fear. And this is what, is what the people are saying to him by by not even acknowledging and, and by killing his servants. And so we know ultimately in verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Uh, we, we know that, that the king is just and, and, um, and, and they share the same fate, but, uh, and they were punished for, for their ways, for their actions. But continuing on, after this whole ordeal, the king uh, sent out his servants to, um, to invite uh, not the representatives of the country anymore and not the noble or, or the high-class citizens, as was the first case uh, previously, but, but um, he sent his servants out to the main roads to collect uh, the commoners and, and the outcasts, uh, the good and the bad, as verse 10 says. And so one thing that this can represent here, because, uh, again, everything has double meaning here, one thing that this can represent is Jesus' acceptance of, of all people. All people are welcome. All people are invited to the kingdom of God, and all people are invited to sit and dine with the king upon the royal wedding day. Not just the nobles, and not just the, the religious elite at that time. And at last, the, the servants' efforts were successful, right? So, uh, um, verse 11, um, or excuse me, the latter half of verse 10, for the wedding hall was filled with guests, and the king came in, and, and the king came in to look at the guests. And so the significant thing to note here is that in this parable, as it was with with the master, God represents the king, and Jesus is the groom, and the religious leaders are those who are refusing the king's invitation, but the church, God's redeemed people, are those who now accept the invitation. And in the end, the king's plans had been fulfilled, and so it is too with our great and glorious God that his plan for redemptive history will be fulfilled through one means or another. Um, so now if we keep reading with uh, verses 11 through 14, 
But when, they came, uh, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are, cho- uh, are chosen. <clears throat> so what's happening here is not that the king is being rude and irrational, right? Because uh, how could a king invite the poor and common in off the streets if, if ultimately he was going to expel them for, for not having the proper garments and, and, and not having the proper clothes uh, to wear? And that's not, that's not a fair expectation. And, and the other interesting thing to note is that Jesus could have very easily ended this parable at verse 10, but he didn't. He continued on. And so... Um, it was typical in this day that if you were invited to, uh, to a wedding feast, that um, the one who invited you would, uh, would, would offer you a, a change of clothes who would, who would provide you proper wedding garments. Uh, and we see that example uh, as the case in, in uh, places like Genesis 45 uh, and in Judges 14. Uh, clothing would be provided, and it's not stated here clearly, but we can certainly assume that that's the case. And so if this is the case that the man was, was offered uh, wedding garments and he was not wearing them, uh, we, can, we can assume that the man was being disrespectful by not wearing what was offered to him. The man had not dressed himself for a feast with a king and actively refused the opportunity to do so. So with this in mind and seeing that Jesus ends this parable with his well-known uh, conclusion, many are called but few are chosen, we can infer that the wedding garments are representative of the righteousness that, that Christ offers all of us and an opportunity to, to put on your new self, uh, um, to, to clothe yourself in righteousness. Refusing this meant that, that you would, in essence, be refusing what, what Christ offers you uh, through his death and through his resurrection. So therefore, like what Jesus is saying is in, in that many are called, but few are chosen, is that many are, are called to partake in the wedding feast, right? Many are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good, to come and know him, and to place their faith in Christ. But we know that the gospel call is not always met with a gospel response. There's not always a, a, a proper response. So this is all that he's saying here. So as I prepare to close, I want us to consider how these three parables are relevant for us this morning. And, and I want to do so by just asking you a, a simple question. How well do we submit to the authority of Christ? And my aim in asking this question is not, suge- is not to suggest that one is saved by good works or by a, a pure and perfect obedience. Rather, my aim is to simply uh, get us thinking about the significance of submission. Like, why, like why, is it, why is it significant to submit to the authority of Jesus? And I, and, and I think that the challenge to, to Jesus' authority uh, was expounded on in, in such great detail as this so as to convey the fact that, that through submission, that is, through the bending of, of our will and, and, and resisting our own fleshly desires and yielding ourselves fully to Christ, that, that through submission, we grow in sanctification, right? And, and, and through our conformity to, to Christ, we learn contentment. 
and and this kind of just opens a, a whole another can of worms um, simply because regardless of, of what we conform to, regardless of, of what we um, see ourselves conforming to, we will soon find comfort in. We will, we'll, we will soon go to this place as, as a source of comfort. For example, um, and, and, and this is dangerous because uh, if we are not conforming to Christ, then we are conforming to something that will not be able to satisfy us or save us or offer us what Christ offers us. And so where I'm going with this is, is simply, uh, have you ever wondered why in the Bible uh, it, is, it is the rich and the powerful who have the hardest time uh, of placing their faith in Christ? So as you, as you may recall, a, f- a few weeks ago, uh, in Matthew 19, where Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why is this? Well, it's because that wealth and influence offer a really severe propensity for people to pursue a crown that they were never meant to have. right? And in, and in obtaining the earthly status as a king, it really becomes easy to forget that we are still under the authority of an even greater king. you know. And so possessions and prestige and power can be really detrimental to those who are called to serve and submit. So, again, I'll add, how, how well do we submit to the authority of Christ? Right? Do we honor the will of the Father in our athletics? Will we submit to him as master in our classrooms? Do we revere him as king in our homes? Like, in our lives, there is a great temptation to challenge the authority of Christ every single day. There's the temptation to gossip, failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's the temptation to, to find more security in what we wear or in how we act or who we talk to than we do in Christ, therefore failing to abstain from idolatry. And on the field, there's the temptation to fall into anger and bitterness and, and jealousy and self-comparison and etc. Um, and, and thus failing to find our ultimate identity in Christ and failing to crucify our flesh with its simple desires and its simple passions. And this is all because we are what we love, and, and we, are, we are becoming what we are beholding. And if we are actively beholden to something that is temporary, then so too will our satisfaction be temporary. Um, in knowing uh, that there is comfort found in temporary things, we keep going back and keep going back and going back, uh, never realizing that, that this is what offers us our, our true and final fulfillment. And, and we, we really need to realize that, that created things will never satisfy us who are created things, right? Creation will never satisfy creation. And so Christ is beckoning us to submit to him as both our Lord and our Savior. This is twofold. He is both Savior and Lord of our lives. And he is the eternal fountain, uh, fountain for for a weary people, and we are downtrodden with sin, and, and we are in, in great need of, of, of what he offers uh, through his sacrifice. And so I'll simply close with this exhortation, uh, uh, Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, unvo- an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Let's pray.